0: Every year beginning somewhere in February or March, I'm usually still on Golden Buddha Island in the Andaman Sea. And the weather is wonderful. I start thinking about coming here. And we never know what we're going to meet when we get here. You know, it's been really times fiercely wild and windy and cold. In the last few years, it's been kind of like now, you know, where in the beginning it's wild and wooly and not sure what's going to happen with the weather, and you know we gather all these things I never I never wear <laughs> in Hawaii or in in Southeast Asia, and then it's like a miracle coming here and. The first day here, there's just a few flowers in the garden. And I I think of our work, and always have, uh, like a garden, we're we're gardeners. We are gardeners of the landscape of the heart. And, And seeing every day more flowers blooming the, the bloom is like a Brahma-Vihara moment. The mature metta or karuna, compassion or mudita moment, empathetic joy. Or just that peaceful abiding, wide mind of equanimity, upeka. So alive and, and vibrant. It's the, it's the landscape that's calling us home vihara it means sacred home, divine dwelling. Another meaning it's the immeasurables, immeasurables. the four immeasurables. They are limitless. There's no limit to metta, compassion. It doesn't have an end to that landscape. In that lovely way of simplicity, like the elephant's footprint, we come to understand these four immeasurables as one mind, these four facets of of a single mind, appropriately connected, in that fundamental meta sense appropriately responsive to life's pain and appropriately responsive to life's delights and that wide wisdom balance that holds all of that that holds it all it's one immeasurable really for practice purposes it's really it's helpful to take these little steps and see the different parts of the one garden different shapes of the flowers and scents and colors and so forth it is one garden but it has these different scents and flavors it's useful also because each of the brahma viharas addressed you know certain woundedness and issues and places ready to be released of love and tenderness and warmth and and limitless Joy and so forth. Uh, so, with the wisdom mind, you know, we, we begin to observe the facets of this one landscape, this one immeasurable. It'd be too much to name all the facets, because even folded within those Brahma Viharas, as we begin to discover, are mystery, reverence, awe. Generosity. They're they're all there. They're all part of the bhavana, beautiful mind states that are coming forth. To feel the pull of that landscape. When Siddhartha, on his way to Buddhahood, exhausted his body Punished his body, you know, for six years of ascetic practices and fasting, and you know, over extended and in too intense yoga practices and so forth, and and, and falling over, you know, just when he'd s- squat to relieve himself, he asked himself a really important question once. Isn't there a better way? <laughs> Isn't there a better way? And at, at that moment in the mythology, Sujata, the milkmaid, came by with her bowl of rice gruel that she <clears throat> that daily offered to the tree devas, of the spirit of a certain tree near where she saw this ascetic. She didn't know who Siddhartha was. But he... A mind change came over her, and she just felt moved to offer the milk, gruel, rice gruel to Siddhartha. And he had just asked himself that question, and you know, I was like, his body asked itself, "Are you doing the right thing for me? You know, are you treating me right?" His body intelligence still had a voice, and uh, and the, the Siddhartha's powerful, rational mind, you know, was overriding the message of his body for six years. He accepted it, he ate it, and he felt that compassionate, feminine warmth of nurture. And he he knew that the path was one of balance, was the beginning of his rediscovery of what's called the middle way path of love and understanding. And because of that change, his, his five close friends who all looked up to him left him. They thought he was resorting to, you know, again his life of uh, of, of pleasures and in fulfilling his sense desires, so they left him alone, which was naturally hard, you know, how does it feel when friends leave us? Even though we have this deep knowing core conviction that something is right, and that you know the path previously taken was damaging, wasn't right, so this he knew, and he had another memory, and another powerful thought, which was a memory of when he was a young child, and his father was as the chief or king of a of a clan, the Sakyan clan in upper India, lower Nepal of today, overseeing a farming festival. And music and dancing suddenly were, you know, ratcheted up. And his nannies kind of looked away and walked toward the festival. And he was left alone in the shade of this rose apple tree in the coolness of it. And in that quiet and in that silence and in that coolness, something happened. His body started to feel connected to the ground under him and the air he breathed seemed to come from the shade of the trees. And and he entered this landscape, flowered landscape of non-separation with his environment, inner and outer, disappeared. And the legend goes that he was there for hours and even as the sun came around, he was still shaded by the tree in an aberration of nature, you know? It sort of meant that he remained in this cool, connected place. And then he felt this, this immeasurable joy, connected joy with everything within and around him. And this thought, 30 years later, is what led him to know that, he, that joy was so much a part of the practice. And you know, this non-punishing approach to deep loving kindness, compassion and wisdom came from caring for the body, being grounded in the body, knowing the body from within the body. And it's, it's non-separation from everything else. And you know, upon that, he, he vowed to understand delusion and how to overcome the darkness of delusion with the light of wisdom. And he found delusion actually as, as, as a sensation in his body. Delusion isn't just something like an idea in, in the rational mind. In fact, the rational mind plays a fairly limited part when we're we're doing this practice, when we're in meditation. We don't use the rational mind much, except those moments where we call up wise reflection. Should I sit longer? Should I walk longer? Should I change postures? You know, as a way to call forth our inner wisdom, non-conceptual wisdom. Delusion is actually s- sensation in, in, in the body and we can find it and overcome it in the body. Uh, as an example, you know, a- anger continues when we're deluded by it through identification, when we think it's an idea and we're lost in this story that so-and-so did this or didn't do this and therefore, you know, I'm, I was uh, betrayed and hurt and we... we in, we increase the delusion the, the more we approach the anger with the rational mind, with the story, with the narrative, with memory and with projection. Instead, if we just drop the story and feel the feeling, we rarely feel the f- pure feeling of anger so that it, it transforms, that metta transforms it. That's what it has the capacity to do. The innate core nature of our being, consisting of these immeasurables, they're, they're, by, the, by their own nature, resentment and fear and anger is transformed energetically, it unwinds. To approach our experience with a mind of karuna, you know, metta-karuna, the compassionate, caring approach to areas within us, you know, that can receive the loving-kindness, can receive the transmission of loving-kindness and care, and, and also learn how to work with any feeling of overwhelm, you know, of deep old anger itself is actually pre verbal and that's why no amount of analysis or you know or story about it or around it ever helps unravel it. It actually is a buffer. It's actually a defense against feeling the true feeling of anger. Uh, and yet the the oldest anger is often pre verbal, it often has invaded our bodies before we've become conceptual, you know, at 18 or 20 months, years old. So no amount of memory would ever figure it out anyway. And so the only approach is a pre-verbal or non-verbal awareness or mindful wisdom awareness anyway. But at times, because of the, the antiquity and the age, age or the power of these old knots within us, it's too much to feel at once. And we need the skill to back off. You know, we we need to know how to resource without disconnecting. The skillful retreat or backing off isn't shutting down. Isn't cutting off the connection with the present moment. You just resource somewhere else in the body. The visual body or the sound vibration body, the aroma or flavor body, some other place where we stay grounded in the moment. That's the critical thing. If we're grounded in the moment, the, the awareness, the wisdom, our meta-awareness is there to hold anything, no matter how painful. And we're not swept away, we don't you know, drown in it. When it doesn't feel okay, it's a clear signal that we've lost touch with something present, with some part of our body. We've lost touch with sensation, with the sense of seeing. You know, to investigate the difference between being lost in an object of sight or an object of sound as opposed to being the field a visual experience or field of sound vibration is tremendous because in the one we're, we're caught in the idea of the, I, the, the concept of what we see or hear in the other, we, we are the field of experience of seeing and hearing we 're grounded we 're in the present moment, and that can be used as a you know, field of meta colors to hold experience and to resource, to renew, to step away from what might be an intense, overwhelming emotion. So we might feel that emotion, for example, right in the belly, that old anger. And many associated a cluster of emotions anger and betrayal and disconnection and loss. It's too much and to go too close to it, it starts to feel like a black hole that we're being sucked into. Or it may feel radioactive, you know, we start to get burned by it. So what to do? It's to recognize that edge and use the body as stepping, body sensations as stepping stones back to some refuge, back to some sanctuary. Another part of the body. The hands are extraordinarily sensitive. You know, place them on your knees or somewhere where they're away from the part of that body that feels overwhelming emotion. Just feel them. Or open your eyes. And let in the immeasurable night sky or the colorful, you know, flowers of the sea and the gardens and trees and so forth. Just being with color. Being with sounds, opening to, to sound. In that way, we stay connected and, and sustained the sustained connected and sustained awareness to the present, and we don't get lost we allow those feelings to remain we're not so close to get to drown in them, to be swept away, and when the strength returns, we come back, touch it kind of like homeopathy, where we get a small dose of the poison to to strengthen our whole immune system, touch it. and and back off each of these Brahmaviharas is is like a transmission a a release of the meta flavor you know the meta aroma it's a release in our bodies we abide and and bask in it and we transmit it to other parts of our body or to the space around us or other beings as feels appropriate Again, the meta intelligence it knows the steps. It knows how to do it by itself. And within that transmission, you know, is all the necessary elements of metta that, that open these old folds, these old knots and tangles. know, in the same way Siddhartha felt his body falling over just when he's trying to defecate, relieve himself. And, wait a minute. Wait a minute. (laughs) Is Is this the right way? Isn't there a better way? Am I afraid of the happiness that comes from skillful sources? You know, the kind of happiness that comes from going inside, deep inside? It's a question that he asks himself. Sometimes our Compassion, um, contrary to common sense, that it, it, it's a sign of weakness, it's just the opposite. We discover the fierceness, the ferocity of com- compassion, what I call fierce compassion. It's great strength in overcoming profound difficulty. In the, in the 50s, uh, the Canadian government was forcefully moving the Inuit indigenous peoples in the north to Balkan Island, a really small place when, you know, they had one of the largest land masses uh, on the planet for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. and And through manipulation and control and presence of force, they were finally getting almost everyone to leave. But there was one grandfather who wasn't going to go. And his family was really afraid for him, so afraid that they they took his tools and his weapons and hid them. The night before that last group, that last community was to be move to Balkan Island. You know, as if, as if they could uh, <laughs> trick a wise one. So in the middle of this Arctic night, grandfather slips out of the ice house the igloo and he squats uh and lifts up his seal skin and caribou uh trousers, he squats he defecates into his hand. It's like 50 below zero. It quickly shapes his uh, his uh, feces into a knife, to the shape of a knife. And then he, he spits on the edge of the knife to make it razor sharp. And then he goes to his two favorite sled dogs and sacrifices one, you know, slays it. And uses the rib cage of that sled dog uh, to make a sled, and, and the skin and sinews of the beloved dog to make a harness. And he harnesses up the, the other dog, and he sheathes his shit knife, and off he goes into the Arctic night. And no one saw him till the following spring, when he came back, you know, healthy and strong. He made his point. It's one of my favorite Wade Davis stories who studied indigenous peoples around the world all his life. It took 40 years. You know, but finally in the 90s, um, Nunavut, a land the size of Western Europe, was uh, returned, you know, small compared to what they had, but was returned to the Inuit people. And, uh, you know, Grandfather to me is just this embodiment of connection and fierce compassion, doing what needed to be done to show that he can survive. doesn't need anything. didn't need all these lies being told, you know, about you've got to go here and get this kind of schooling, and this sort of education. He, he knew different. And he was going to hold on to that way of knowing. Because of people like him, We haven't forgotten our indigenous heart. It's near to us. It's not so far. And if we're ever in a position like that, (laughs) we know how we might be able to survive. (laughs) The transmission... And release of karuna be like any time we feel you know a sorrow or a hurt sensation in the body, touching it with that caring, sensitive karuna awareness, touching it and being with it. Being with what happens. The innate core being of compassion just begins to open up. You know, all these recesses of the body. And, and it's, it's why at times the body goes into contracted states. It's why at times we, we feel whole areas of our body numb. You can't feel it at all. And it's why at times the body fe- seems to involuntarily contort, you know, and, and go through different movements. In in one retreat in the 80s, a three-month time of practice with my teacher, my body went, at one time went through nine straight hours of contortions. You know, luckily I was sitting in my room it really would have freaked out everyone else it's sometimes it all seems to be happening while we sustain our posture, but sometimes it, it goes beyond that you know and 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 my my body seemed to be going through every stage of evolution, and those were often the the images that would arise in the sensations that I felt in the body, just like primal life like uh, just most protoplasmic kinds of early life, and everything up to and including the, the the pain and terror of going through a birth canal of being born. The body remembers. The body knows. And, and our and the skillfulness in our practice is being able to check. That power of the rational mind to override feeling experience, what we don 't do well, and i can't we can 't say it too much, is truly feel feelings. What we do really well is either reject them or interpret them, have thoughts about them, you know. And that's when we need to find delusion in the body, the sensations of delusion in the body that keep wanting to cover, to hide, to mask, to rationalize. Well, this must be that. You know, and in all the strategies, when, when we come on retreat, it's just the perfect magnifying glass to see how we live. You know, how much do we stay connected in our embodied in these sensations and embedded in our senses of aromas and flavors and sounds and sights just check the first few hours of the day how often when you take a shower do you are you reading the label on the shampoo you know or just you look for something to occupy the mind you study how things are 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 around you with the rational and the thinking mind, or you're tempted to go to, you know, to the shopping mall, in the office, and you know, look at books or look at things, or anyway, even using the environment around us as a as a, as a book to read, rather than as a canopy of colors to receive, or a symphony of sounds to hear, and aromas to smell. You know. It's it's that level of that of survival strategies we've learned to create. For good reason. You know, our young child wisdom to survive just created ways to strategies to cope with things, to deal with things. So, so we can actually, you know, bow to these survival strategies here and now, and say, you know, thank you very much. But now, instead of intellectualizing or our um, our personas of anger and fear and rejection and fantasizing, in and, and all the ways that we leave the present, we, we realize that that's what we use to protect. That sense of our core worthiness, our core being—it's—it's it's delusion that feeds the sense of unworthiness. So when Siddhartha realized that there was another way to practice, and he resolved to go and sit until he knew, until wisdom came within him, he, he was attacked first by you know forces that. Tempted him off his seat of awakening, all the pleasures and allures and temptations of the of the senses, and then attacked with all the threats and intimidations, these images of of um, spears and darts and and uh, six-tusked elements, ele- elephants charging him, and it said he just sat there, you know, and was unmoved by the allures and temptations. The spears and darts supposedly turned into flowers. And the charging elephants, you know, came to a screeching halt as they got near him. Because he wasn't going for it. He wasn't grasping toward the pleasant and pushing away the pleasure, the, the fearful things, the intimidations, the threats. The most severe of all the attacks was unworthiness you know, born of delusion when, when Mara this sort of personification this being that embodies greed, hatred, delusion that's the tempter the intimidator and the deluder said to Siddhartha who, who do you think you are? why do you deserve to be on this seat of awakening and become Buddha? you know, what have you done? I've done a lot of good things. In fact, I have witnesses. I can name here's a piece of paper. I can all these people have seen me do generous things or compassionate thing. Who's your witness? And that's when it says that the Buddha touches the earth goddess. So Mother Earth herself is, is witness to my right to become Buddha, to be awakening, to my worthiness. My goodness, and it said the earth shook, you know, and the heavens trembled and and the, and the elephants bowed down to him, and Mara fell off his elephant and ran away crying, and so forth. Lovely, powerful mythology that carries truth, that transmits you know truth, and helps tell us what to do in, in a similar situation when we feel our own unworthiness and what's our right? to be sitting here and, and, and generating the space in which unconditional love comes for. You know, how often do we have these feelings that do I deserve to receive unconditional love? Who am I to give unconditional love? I can hardly receive it. You know, and then checking in the body, where are those sensations of doubt, of delusion, of deception? And feel those feelings. If we feel those feelings of delusion in those moment in those moments it falls away and our worthiness returns and we sit strong and confident and trusting. And if only for some moments, you know that wash of metta, that fearless compassion or that empathetic joy comes forward. You know, and we're Buddha in those moments. And the cycle will go around, you know, as many times as it it needs to, to to gain light in there. You know, like Malodoma, being told to dim the lights in order to see clearly. So we descend, each time we descend a little deeper into the body and dim the bright conceptual lights of the rational mind that wants to rationalize, to explain, to conceptualize, to interpret and feel. Feeling is more primal. Feeling is more original than the thinking mind. That came as a later tool. And although, of course, it's vital and has its great uses for the purpose of awakening and restoring this immeasurable mind of metta and balance, it's not useful. Feeling is I remember different stages of my mom's passing. And it began, and it was about an eight year period, and then the last two years moved her into our home. And the whole last year, she was pretty much just lying, lying down. Before, she could only lie down. She'd sometimes get up in the middle of the night. You know, she was nearly 97, and my daughter, our daughter, was was there as the first caretaker when she needed 24-hour care, and uh, had one of those um, baby monitors, and, 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 and slept in a room on the one end of the house. And in my room was just down the hall from you know the, the disability room that I made for my mom, and I kept my door ajar because she'd figure out how to get out of her hospital bed, you know, one way or another, and uh, and get into trouble somehow, you know. It's, she was a rebel, you know, like the Buddha. The Buddha became the Buddha because Siddhartha was, was a marvelous uh, re- rebel. You know, he rebelled against the rational mind. He re- rebelled against the, the, um, the uh, society of the time, the hierarchies of the time, the belief systems of the time. So in the same way, you know, I saw my, my mom going through these stages and one night I heard her talking so I got up and walked walked down the hall, she'd gotten out of bed and she walked across the room and she was looking in the mirror in in the in you know the the one room with the the washroom toilet and everything, so she was down at the end, looking in the mirror and the, and Chandra, our daughter hadn't hadn't heard anything yet said mom what she what, what are you doing?" she says "Well, I'm trying to get to that little girl in there." Where? It, there, that in there, it's in that window. I, i How do you get there? She's in that other place, in that other room. The, oh, right, mom. That you mean you? Are you is that are you looking at you? And no, no, that little girl. That little girl. Can't you see her? And, and by this time, Chandra had heard the sounds and she came in the room. Tutu, you know, so, and say how we call grandparent in Hawaii, Tutu, what are you doing? And she said the same thing. And she said, Chandra said, okay, let's talk about this, grandma. And and she went into the the other bathroom in the hall and got a hand mirror, came back, and used that mirror to lure her back to bed. And the three of us went back to sit down on the bed. And, um, and Chandra went through a, re- a review of who each of us was, you know, the mom, the son, the daughter and granddaughter, and so forth. And, and Tutu, this is you that holds the mirror up. You know, in that moment, then she, she saw herself and not the little child of her past. And she said, That's not me, that's an old lady. <laughs> And Chandra said, "Yeah, Grandma, that's 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 you." And she said, "Does this happen to everyone?" <laughs> and the same question that Siddhartha asked before he left the palace. Uh, and Chandra and I say, "Yes, Duttu, you know, this happens to everyone." And my mom said, "Well, that's not very fair." <laughs> And she started to laugh, you know she she saw and she felt the truth, and she's you know got a a whiff of of life, you know of dukkha of uncertainty of disappointment and so forth. but it was the truth, and she relaxed, and she was okay. She went back to sleep, you know and it was those kinds of dialogues with my mom's stages of passing where I felt um, these immeasurables playing themselves out spontaneously, you know, and effortlessly all the way up to the point where it was her final hours and Michelle called me back from Golden Buddha and um, and then we, you know, had 36 hours with her the last two and a half hours, you know, it was just it was just like this garden of and space of the immeasurables. Uh, and she she fixed her gaze on, into mine and mine onto hers, and it was like this continuous transmission of giving and receiving. And then I noticed even our breaths were were harmonized. Uh, and at times she'd hyper Ventilate, and and I kind of catch up to that and slow down, and so her breath would slow down, and sometimes her breaths were so slow, you know, she was starting to choke off, and and I speed it up a bit, and we did that and sustained that as 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 long as her uh, her life psychic factor um, wanted to stay on until she was ready for for her her last breath, you know. And she took it still in this sort of meditative transmission. Uh, What we're here to do, you know. We're here to learn how to die uh, by living. uh, And by living fully, you know, like... Inuit grandfather and uh, Siddhartha becoming the Buddha. In all the ways that these practices restore our connection to core being, to core love and compassion, joy and equanimity. And in, in the great patience required to go through when the stream becomes like rapids and it feels really crazy and it's rushing all too much and we need an eddy you know we need to go to the side and and resource and, and draw from something else in the present moment some other felt experience but it's always that wise discernment between am i feeling what's happening or am I just thinking it? You know, and without demonizing the conceptual mind, regarding it for what it does and what it's, where it's useful, we set it aside and call up again our indigenous heart, that feeling, sensing, intuitive knowing. It keeps placing us back elementally in vibration, and heat, in graininess, in flow, in cohesion, in tension, in subtle vibration. Just again and again, this gentle connection and sustaining. We'll find that the connecting, the continual spirit of connecting again and again to our meditation focus, well, there, it's the sensation in the body or the you know just the whole meta field that we're abiding in the connecting mind overcomes the the sloth and torpor that blocks connection and the sustaining mind that e- immerses into sensation and feels sensation from within this sensation not from the thoughts just continually feeling it, the immersion mind is what overcomes doubt. Again and again, we, we learn to, to feel and that that's what's real and that's what's true, not what we think about it. Doubt comes because we think about it and we try to fix it or change it. Confidence and trust comes from just feeling it. It's that simple. We return our way to this simplicity. And then slowly, you know, with these larger, deeper knots and tangles, like anger and fear, other qualities come forward that are part of our meditation. Piti. You know, the, the first two, connecting and emerging, immersion, are called vitaka, vichara. Piti is... That interest Michelle was was talking about, that sort of then graduates into joy, joyous interest, and that often steps even deeper into moments of of rapture and bliss that we all had just by being in a this container, this body that we're here in, abiding in this body of sights and sounds that's so still and so peaceful and so profoundly supportive of the practice. This piti is what starts to first backlight and then disentangle our fear knots, our anger knots, our resentment knots. Piti overcomes that hindrance of aversion, ill will, fear and anger. Slowly, surely, one cycle and then another and we back off, and we need to back off and resource somewhere else, and we come back. And the stories, the images, the pictures, they'll come up, but just be gentle and reflect. The story isn't going to help. The story isn't the feeling. And the feeling is the healing. Again and again, remind ourselves that. And then... Another part of this meditative mind, this bhavana, is called sukha. It's the opposite of, of dukkha, you know, which means everything is broken. You know, dukkha is anxiety and anguish and it's the it's the disappointments of life. It's the first noble truth of the Buddha. Sukha is this profound ease of mind, body, particularly the body that feels like it can those moments where you we feel that we can't even get up. We can just keep sitting, even when there's pain, even when there's you know physical um, tension and tightness and heat and burning. Still, there's this comfort all around it. And sukha is like a profound spiritual happiness and ease. A lot of equanimity is is there. it's, it's okay because we feel really connected and there's. No separation in our in our sense world. You know, like with indigenous people, life isn't out there. The stars aren't out there. They they come right in here in the dome of the heart, mind, and sounds. They're right here. They're not out there. That mental, rational projection. That that's all out there. No, it's our body, and then the sukha collects that knowledge again. So that overcomes again, anxiety, restlessness, worry, one of the five hindrances. And finally, the, the mind that starts to become unified, collected, like when water gathers in a, in a, in a pond, and it's so cohered, Kagara is the word for this uh, one mind, unified mind, collected mind, and that overcomes attachment, wanting something else than what's happening, clinging. So each of these five meditative qualities, from this practice we're doing, they're they're like attendants to the immeasurables. They attend so that the metta, and the compassion and the joy, equanimity can grow themselves, the connecting mind, the sustaining mind, Vitaka, Vichara, and then piti, which uh, was the, the interest and joy, even rapture, or bliss, that starts to unravel and, and uh, uh, deconstruct these knots, these old knots of hurt and pain and wound, woundedness, slowly but surely, piti moments infiltrate. And the sukha, that, directly deals with, with the first noble truth, anxiety and brokenness and fragmentation. start to feel just the oneness with everything around us and alive, feel really alive. These qualities make us, return us to that aliveness. And the ikagara, the unified mind in, in which the fracturing nature of wanting mind desire, clinging, uh, can't gain a foothold. That's our practice. This is the one immeasurable mind. Just sit for a moment with grandfather at our side. May our practice continue to reveal from intuitive knowing when we're disembodied. And may our love and compassion fill us with that felt sense of being here and now.